Please turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 8. We're going to begin reading in verse 4 and read through verse 21. This is God's Word. And when a great crowd was gathering and people from town after town came to Jesus, he said in a parable, a sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. And some fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. As he said, that, as he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when his disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. But for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while and in time of testing fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart, and bear fruit with patience. No one, after lighting a lamp, covers it with a jar or puts it under a bed, but puts it on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. For nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. Take care, then, how you hear, for to the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he thinks that he has will be taken away. Then his mother and his brothers came to him, but they could not reach him because of the crowd. And he was told, Your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. But he answered them, My mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. Well, Lord willing, this is the last time during this coronavirus epidemic that I will have to preach to an empty room. I miss your wonderful faces and your encouraging responses as I preach the Word of God. And I pray that the old adage that absence makes the heart grow fonder will be intensely true for us as we experience once again gathered worship and sweet fellowship together in the weeks and months to come. In many ways, as I reflect back upon the last couple of months, preaching to an empty room feels like a metaphor to me. It's a picture of how it often feels for us as Christians in this very dark culture in which we live. We've been given the Word of God, the very precious Word of God, to share with the world. But at so much of the time, it feels like no one's listening. It feels that way, 
And much of the time it is that way. But we know that there are some people who are being awakened by the Holy Spirit, who are seeking after truth, who are open to hear what God has to say to them. And we want to reach those people. Romans chapter 10 verse 14 says, How then will they call on him of whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? The word of God is what people need to hear. There are so many overwhelming problems in the world and it seems like that's only been intensified in recent days and weeks. But the solution to all those problems, at the root of those problems, is the word of God and that's what's been entrusted into our hands to take to the world. Jesus has a lot to say in this passage that we just read about hearing the message of his kingdom and how one enters into his kingdom. In verse 8, he says, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. In verse 12, he speaks of those who have heard. In verse 13, he speaks of those who, when they hear the word. In verse 14, he says, those who hear. In verse 15, those who hearing the word. And then in verse 21, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. That is the theme that ties all these sections of this passage together. The necessity of people hearing the message of the kingdom of God and how to enter into it. As Jesus gives this teaching, there was a genuine spiritual revival going on in Israel and the surrounding territories. It was started under the ministry of John the Baptist as people flocked to him to hear his message of conviction of sin and the need for repentance and then followed up by the much greater spiritual awakening that was happening as Jesus went around teaching with unique authority and doing great miracles. And so this passage begins, again, Luke emphasizes for us how big the gathering was around Jesus. It says, and when a great crowd was gathering, people from all over Judea and Galilee were coming to hear what Jesus had to say and to see the great miracles, to witness the power that he exerted on earth. But as this is happening, and I'm sure the disciples, as they stood by Jesus' side and saw the crowds getting bigger and bigger, Jesus realized he needed to prepare his disciples for what ministry would look like in the future, to prepare us to know what it would be like to be given this precious message of the kingdom of God and how to enter into it that Jesus came to bring, that he came to accomplish, how to take this message to the world. What are we to expect? How does a person go from living in darkness to living in the light of the kingdom of God? How does conversion work? And what does that mean for how we are to witness to people about Jesus Christ? Part of the problem I think the church has faced in the last 50 years is that we've come slowly to recognize that the old methods of evangelism don't work these days like they used to. When I grew up, when I first became a Christian, and when I started in ministry, 
a lot of what the church called evangelism was what we would call event evangelism. We'd have big events and invite people to come and they'd flock to come and the gospel would be shared and they would hear the word and many would be converted. Or we would do door-to-door -door evangelism, something like evangelism explosion. It was very effective in many different places in many different times. Or we would hand out tracts to people and people would be anxious to read them to find out about spiritual truth. These kinds of things don't work anymore in the culture in which we're in. Not that they don't ever work, but by and large, they are not as effective as they used to be. And one of the things that we need to understand is that before you talk about methodology, we can argue about the best methodology of evangelism for a long time, but what's more important is that we study the scriptures to understand the theology of evangelism, to understand how conversion works, to understand how God is working among sinners to bring them to Jesus Christ that they might be saved. And if we understand how God is working, that will help us to decide and apply what is the best methodology of evangelism in our culture, in our neighborhood, in our family. How effective would a farmer be if he did not understand the science of how crops grow? If he doesn't understand how crops grow, then his methods are not going to be effective. And so we often wonder, why do some people respond to the truth revealed by God and others reject it? So many others reject it. The majority of people that we encounter in life, by and large, reject this truth from God. Well, Jesus here tells a parable, probably one of his most familiar parables. Parables were short stories that tell spiritual truths. And he tells this short story to explain why there were, even in his day, such radically different responses on the part of the people who heard the message of the kingdom. The word parable in the original Greek actually is a combination of words, and what it means, literally, is to place two things alongside of one another so that you can compare them to one another. And so in this case, he places beside the witness that we give to the gospel of the kingdom, he puts that alongside a farmer sowing his seed in the field. And by showing the similarities, teaches us deeper spiritual truths about how his kingdom message is spread through the world. Unlike many of the parables, one of the rules that you'll learn about interpreting parables is that parables typically have one main point and you have to be careful not to attribute spiritual meaning to every little detail in the story, the little earthly story that Jesus tells. But in this case, actually, it's partly a parable, but also it actually leans more towards being an allegory. An allegory is where almost every element in the story does represent some spiritual truth. And as Jesus interprets his own parable, and if, as we'll see in a few moments, he actually treats it almost like an allegory because almost everything in his short little story has some spiritual meaning to it. Well, what's the first lesson that we learn from this parable as we compare sowing seed to witnessing the message of the kingdom? Well, the first lesson we need to learn about is the life-giving power of the Word of God. In verse 3, he begins his parable by saying, a sower went out to sow his seed. 
It helps to know a little bit about what a farmer did in the first century in, in, the, in Palestine, how he began his year, he began his, his work of harvest by sowing seed out in the field. He would have a bag of seed strung over his shoulder, and he would, as he walked through his field, he would grab handfuls of seed out of the bag, and then he would just swing his arm back and forth, casting that seed wherever it may fall, pretty indiscriminately. It wasn't an, a, a difficult skill for someone to acquire. You didn't have to go to sewing school in order to be a good farmer. And that's one of the first lessons we need to learn as we look at this parable that Jesus tells. Even though we often, and I would say usually call it the parable of the sower, the focus of the story is not on the sower. We want to focus on the messenger. And isn't that so often true in the life of the church? We want powerful messengers to go do the work of evangelism. We want charismatic, eloquent speakers to go out for us and win people over to Christ and the kingdom of God. We get too focused upon the messenger and miss the fact that it's the message where the power is. That's where the power lies. When Jesus begins to interpret this parable in verse 11, he says, the seed is the word of God. He doesn't even mention the sower. The seed is the word of God. A seed, whatever kind of seed you're talking about, in this context it would probably be either uh, for wheat or barley, but a seed is a good picture of the power of the Word of God because a seed, in a very real sense, has life within itself. It has the embryo of the future plant within itself. All the nutrients that are necessary for that seed to grow, if it's placed in the right environment, are there in the seed. There is, in a very real sense, I think that's what Jesus is trying to say, there is, in a very real sense, life within the seed itself. This reminds us of what Peter says over in 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 23, talking about our conversion, those of us who have come to know Christ by faith. This is how he describes it in 1 Peter 1, verse 23, 24, and 25. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. The living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. We also think of the Apostle Paul. In that great declaration in Romans chapter 1 when he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The gospel message, the message of the kingdom, the message of how to come into Christ's kingdom. This gospel message is the power of God. The word in Greek for power there is the word from which we get the word in English dynamite. Explosive power of life is in the Word of God. I need to be reminded of this every time I go to preach the Word. Because in this cultural context, we have a lot of powerful speakers. People that are very gifted. 
people that are very eloquent, people that are very intelligent, mesmerizing in their ability to communicate effectively, whether you're talking about inside the church or outside the church. And for somebody who, like me, who preaches for a living, that puts pressure on me to feel like I need to measure up to that. I need to be as gifted. I need to be as eloquent. I need to be as intelligent. And every time, every Sunday morning, or the last few weeks, every Thursday morning before I go to preach, I have to spend time on my knees before the Lord, asking him to keep me aware of the fact that the power of the gospel is not in me, it's in the message itself. That the power of any message, the power to bring life, the power to transform life, is in the word itself. And so my prayer is that I, as one who is been sent by the Lord to proclaim the word, that I not obscure it, corrupt it, twist it in any way, but present it as it is to help people to understand what the word of God is saying, because in that understanding comes life and life abundant. In Hebrews 4, it says that the word of God is living and active, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, We don't need to add to the Word of God. We don't need to take anything away from the Word of God. We don't need to fix the Word of God. We don't need to update it. We don't need to jazz it up. We need to present it because the Word of God has power and life within it. You see, that's what happens in a culture like ours. I talked about how difficult it is in a hardened culture like we live in. It's so hard to proclaim the word because people don't want to listen. It doesn't fit their worldview. It doesn't fit their value system. And when people stop listening to the word of God, and I do believe that we live in one of those times, it's not always like this. I would love to live in a time of great revival like the great revivals of history, but we're not in a time of revival right now. And in a time like this, We need to resist strongly and be on guard against the temptation that we always have to change the Word of God to make it more palatable to our culture. To add things to the Word of God that the Word of God doesn't say to make it more acceptable to our culture. To remove things from the Word of God that this culture finds objectionable so that they might listen. But if we start adding to or taking away from the power of the word of God, we we basically undermine its power. Our job is not to make the word of God better. Our job as those who proclaim, who share, who tell others about the word of God is to point them to it and let them find the life that is there in Jesus Christ. Now that's not to say that there aren't communication gifts and skills that God uses greatly to spread his word. And I'm so thankful for those who have those gifts and skills. But all of us have the responsibility of, in the words of Paul in the book of Ephesians, to speak the truth in love. You see, it's not so important that we have skill in communication. It's not so important that we are gifted speakers, that we are highly intelligent. That's not so important that we just point people to the word of God and do it in a spirit and attitude and motive of love for them. As I've learned through many years of ministry, the tone 
that you have as you share the Word of God is so important. That people perceive that you are sharing the Word of God not as some kind of a political stance or some kind of cultural war or some, something to beat people over the head with to, to try to, to win a debate, but that you have a tone of love and self-sacrifice as you point people to the Word. Paul said to the Corinthian church, When I came to you, I did not come proclaiming the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. He said, I simply preach Christ crucified. It's always helpful for me to remember that as I struggle with my own weaknesses and fears and feelings of inadequacies, that Paul did not consider himself a gifted, eloquent, powerful communicator. He just preached Christ crucified and he did so in love. And no one has been more used of God to spread the message of the kingdom of Jesus Christ than Paul the Apostle. Maybe our true insecurity about not sharing the word of God more often, maybe that insecurity isn't based in a, a sense of inadequacy in our intelligence or our communication skills. Maybe it's in, as I know many of us are willing to admit, we don't know the word of God well enough. But we don't want to put the blame there because that's something all of us can fix. All of us can spend more time in the Word. All of us can study the Word of God more. All of us can, can dig into the deep teachings of Scripture. It's available to all of us. We need to be sharing the truth in love. But as Jesus goes on to tell this parable, it takes more than sowing the seed for life to happen in a sinner. The second lesson is about the condition of the heart. You can't grow good seed in bad soil. Just as different kinds of seeds, different kinds of soil will receive the seed in different ways, so different kinds of hearts will receive the word of God in different ways. Paul, or, uh, Jesus ends this parable by saying, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. He said that often, recognizing that there are people who do not yet have the ears to hear. Jesus describes a field. This, as he talks about the, the farmer sowing the seed in the field, he's talking about a field that would sound familiar to anybody in the first century. Every farmer would prepare his field, try to make it healthy, but not all the soil in the field would be suitable to grow the seed. And so Jesus talks about four different kinds of soil in any typical farmer's field. And the first type of soil that he describes is the hard soil. That would be the path where the farmer would walk through the field to sow his seed if, if for other, many other reasons. But in order to get through the field, he would have to have paths. And on those paths, that, that ground would be tamped down very hard. And so when he'd sow, go through sowing his seed, spreading it, any seed that fell on that hardened path would not even penetrate the soil and therefore could not possibly grow. Jesus goes on to say it would just lay there on top of the path and therefore it would turn into bird seed immediately. The birds would come quickly to take the seed away. And so the seed would not have any impact on the soil. 
And so what he's describing here clearly is the unresponsive, maybe even hostile heart of the hardened sinner, the kind of heart that Jesus saw so often in the scribes and the Pharisees. They wouldn't even listen to Jesus' words in many cases, but even when they listened, they had no intention to, to try to understand and receive what he had to say. They heard his words, but they did not consider them and rejected them out of hand. And notice how Jesus, in interpreting the parable, says that the devil is involved when somebody's heart becomes that hard. The devil, he, the, the person in a sense becomes a captive to the evil one, a, captain, a captive to the devil because the devil becomes very active in keeping exposure to the truth away from that hardened heart. These people are willfully blind to spiritual truth. That means they're either indifferent to it completely or they're hostile to it. Paul describes this same interaction between the devil and the hardened heart over in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning in verse 3, when he says, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, the devil, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. That's the hardened soil, the path, which is not impacted by the word at all. The second type of soil that Jesus talks about representing a state of human heart is the rocky soil. A lot of the fields in Judea were a lot like Pennsylvania fields, full of rocks. I grew up in an area where the rocks were bigger than houses and all the, we didn't have many farms in the area where I grew up because the soil was clay and rocky. And so if a farmer sows seeds into that kind of soil, there may be and there likely would be a very shallow level of soil on top of the rock, but if you dug down at all, and I've tried many times to dig into good Pennsylvania soil and hit a rock within less than an inch, that because the soil on top of the rock is so shallow, the seed cannot produce roots in order to get the nutrients and the water it needs to be able to grow. And so Jesus said, these are like the people, as you go on to his explanation of the parable, he says, these are the people who initially receive the word. They hear the word of the gospel. They hear the word of the kingdom. And they respond favorably, even joyfully, he says at first. There's an emotional response to a message about conviction of sin or repentance or faith in Jesus or eternal life. But when the hard times come, that profession of faith goes away very quickly. In verse 13, he talks about times of testing. And in those times of testing, this shallow, superficial faith is shown to be not a real faith. There's no root to it. It's not real. And it goes away quickly. These would be the people who did not count the cost in order to follow Jesus. And when the cost got too great, they walked away. These would be like the people after Jesus fed the 5,000, his popularity was probably never greater among the crowds than when he fed 5,000 people. And they chased him around the lake and they were, they were flocking to him. 
And then he delivered in that occasion some of his most difficult teaching about what it meant to be a disciple of his. And it says there in John chapter 6 that after that time, many people stopped following him. Jesus was preparing his disciples for that moment. To understand that just because you had thousands of people now listening to his teaching and hanging on his every word, that doesn't mean that all of them were truly putting their faith in him. That many of these people had a very shallow and superficial response that was not real faith. And when the testing would come, they would fall away. I remember many times my mother used to love to watch Billy Graham every time he would be preaching on the television. And as a, as a boy, even before I was a believer, I remember being so impressed by the lines and lines, thousands upon thousands of people flocking to the front when, he, when they would start singing Just As I Am and he would be calling them to repent and to believe in Jesus. But Billy knew and everybody who worked with him knew that only a tiny percentage of those people who were giving this emotional response to a call to believe, that only a small percentage of these people would persist in believing in the weeks and months and years to come. And so that's the rocky soil. The third type of soil that Jesus describes is the weedy soil. The soil that was full of thorns and weeds. Some of the seed would fall where these other rogue plants would be growing. And weeds, so it seems like in almost every case, weeds grow faster than healthy or plants that we need for food or that are plants that are useful to us. And so the weeds, as Jesus says, would choke out the good plants and the seeds would not be able to grow. And in verse 14, Jesus says that those thorns, those weeds, they represent, the, as he says, the cares and the riches and the pleasures of life. These are people who are initially drawn to the truth of the gospel. They're drawn to Jesus. They're drawn to the word of God initially for, for whatever reason. But when it comes to commitment, when it comes to following Christ, when it comes to truly believing and putting their faith in him and giving their life over to him, they just have too much going on right now. Too many things that they need to take care of. Their career is just not a good place for them to focus on their spiritual life right now. They just don't have time to read the Bible right now. They just cannot afford their family situation, doesn't allow them to come to church. And so these are the weeds, the thorns that are crowding out any sense of desire to know Jesus, to believe the gospel. This would be the rich young ruler who was drawn to Jesus but couldn't give up his wealth and possessions to follow him. This would be Judas who did follow Jesus for a while but was too enamored by the money offered to him and too disillusioned by his understanding of who Jesus ought to be and ended up not only departing from him, but denying him and betraying him. And I also think of Paul's associate Demas. We don't know much about Demas. Matter of fact, all that we know about Demas is the one unfortunate phrase that's attached to his name forever in the church, which is Demas loved this present world and departed. Of these first three types of soil that Jesus describes, 
One of those types of soil rejects the word of God outright without ever considering it. Considering it. The other two types of soil initially respond favorably to the word of God, to the gospel, to the message of the kingdom, but that response is superficial and ultimately not real. And these people eventually fall away. All three types, even though they respond in slightly different ways to the preaching of the truth of the gospel, all three of them are bad soil. All three of them represent the un unregenerate heart. In 1 John chapter 2, the Apostle John talks about false teachers who not only claimed to follow Jesus, not only became part of the church, but actually became teachers in the church but then turned their back on the truth and walked away from the church. And this is what John says about them in 1 John chapter 2. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you, he says to those who are standing firm in their faith, you have been anointed by the Holy One. Well, what does that say about those who departed? They had not been anointed by the Holy One. They had not received the work of the Holy Spirit. Their hearts were not changed. Their hearts were not prepared. They were like the rocky soil or the weed-filled, thorn-filled soil. And so the seed of the Word did not form roots and therefore bear fruit in their lives. What these three types, the hardened soil, the rocky soil, and the thorn-filled soil, what these three types of heart that are represented by these three types of soil, what that has in common is the absence of the work of the Holy Spirit in them. To open spiritual ears, to open spiritual eyes, to change the heart from a heart of stone to a living heart that truly believes, that truly follows, that truly repents, and truly loves the Lord Jesus Christ and continues to do so. Well, that brings us to the fourth type of soil that Jesus describes, what I'll call the ready soil. The soil that was ready to receive this, the, the seed, the, the healthy soil, the prepared soil. Ground that was well plowed, fertilized, watered, and ready to receive the seed. This is the heart of the elect, those chosen of God who receive the Holy Spirit to change their heart so that when the word of God is proclaimed to them, the word of God is received and acted upon and obeyed. In verse 15, Jesus describes these people as those who hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. This is the softened heart, the teachable heart the heart that seeks the truth and rejoices in it and embraces it and, and literally clings to it. That's what the, the Greek word means, that keep on clinging to the word. These are the people that keep on clinging to the word, especially in the trials and sufferings of life. The, the testings that Jesus talked about that proved these other types of people to be not be true believers, the testings of trials and sufferings for a true believer with a born-again heart is that they will actually cling harder to the word of God in times of trial and suffering. This is what the born again heart of a believer does. 
It wants to listen. It wants to understand. It wants to believe. It wants to repent. It wants to obey the word of God. Not perfectly. There's still much of the old nature that, that plagues us, but that desire is there because that is the work of the Holy Spirit in the heart of a sinner. As 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12 says, we have received the Spirit who is from God that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And there you have the two key elements that will produce true believers who bear fruit in the kingdom of God. The powerful, life-giving word of God and the powerful, transforming the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. The Word and the Spirit, the Word and the Spirit, that's the key to spreading the message of the kingdom, and we must never forget that. But having had these explained to us by our Lord, let's go back to talk for a moment about that secondary character, that person who kind of re recedes into the background, that sower. Because that is an example to us of the importance of the faithfulness of us as his witnesses. The sower, at the time that Jesus speaks this parable, was Jesus himself. But soon it would be his disciples as he gave them the calling, the responsibility to take his word to the world. And now that's been handed down by faithful sowers throughout every generation to us. And we are the ones who have been given this revelation from God, this precious truth of the kingdom of God, of the Lord Jesus Christ to take to the world. We are the sowers of the seed. The focus of the story that Jesus tells is on the seed and the soil, the work of the word of God and the work of the Holy Spirit of God. And we have said already that the sower should not be the focus of the work. The success of our mission does not depend upon us, our ability, our gifts, our energy, our effort. It does not depend upon us. But by God's grace, it includes us. When the Corinthian church put too much emphasis on the human leaders that was causing the great spread of the kingdom in the early church, this is how Paul responded in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in verse 5. He says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. You see, it doesn't depend upon any of us. If we refuse to speak up with the truth that God has given to us, God will raise up somebody else to do it. He does not depend upon us. But what a gracious, wonderful privilege he has given us to be the ones who possess the seed and sow the seed and that we become part of this great kingdom mission to bring the word of God to those who desperately need to hear it. It's a simple job. I do believe we tend to make it out to be much harder than it really is. We need to sow the truth of the gospel, and we do that in so many ways. We do it by leading Bible studies. We do it by preaching. We do it by teaching Sunday school. We do it by leading in youth group. We do it when we call up a friend on the phone and share some scriptures with them about the problems that they're facing. 
or when we go to our neighbor and talk to them about their problems in light of what the Word of God says. We do it in so many ways. We're sowing seed, and that's all the Lord expects of us. Part of the problem is that we're taking on responsibilities that he has reserved for the, for the Word of God alone and for the Holy Spirit. We're not called to be persuaders. That's the Holy Spirit's job. The Holy Spirit changes hearts. The Holy Spirit persuades. We just give the truth. And when you think about it, if you're dealing with somebody who has a heart that's like that, that hardened path that the seed can't penetrate, if you go and try to dump a whole bag of seed on that one spot to try to make some of that seed grow, it's not going to work. And neither will you barraging somebody who has a hardened heart. None of it is ever going to have an effect if that heart is not prepared to hear it. And that's encouraging for us to know that God doesn't expect us to keep beating our head against a brick wall when somebody has a hardened heart and they not only are indifferent to the word or possibly even hostile to the word, he doesn't expect us to keep casting our pearls before the swine, as, as Jesus would say. Or, you know, he would say, there are some situations where you actually shake the dust off your feet and go to somewhere where you'll find these teachable, seeking hearts where the Holy Spirit is working. That doesn't mean that God is forever done with that person with a hardened heart, not until they die, that we don't know for sure where that person stands in God's plan and God's grace. But in that moment, we can't make that person receive the truth. Also, when it comes to either any of these types of soil, these three types that aren't prepared, trying to shove that seed deeper is not going to make the seed grow either if the soil is bad. And so this does apply to our methodology in evangelism. Salesman techniques are not going to make the, the word of God penetrate the heart of an unbeliever if their heart is not being prepared by the Holy Spirit. You need the Word and the Spirit working together to change their life. And we don't need to try to manipulate people to make them believe. That's not our job. Well, that's interesting because then we get to these last, this last couple of sections after he interprets the parable, looking at verses 16 to 18, really you'll see here that the theme is very much the same. And you'll see the connection. Jesus switches metaphors. Instead of comparing God's word to the seed in the ground, he compares it to the word of God to light in the midst of darkness. And he says that those who receive this light, those who have these prepared hearts, that are able to receive the light and be changed by the light, therefore they become like lamps like a first century lamp, like a terracotta lamp with a wick down into the oil and, and have a spout on the end where the light would, the flame would, would, put, would uh, project light out into the whole room, we would be like those lamps. The light has come into us. The Holy Spirit has enabled us to receive the word of God so that this light penetrates our life. So then we become a light. And what do you do with a light? You don't hide it under the bed. You don't put it under a jar, he says. You put it up on a pedestal, you put it up on a platform so that it can bring light to the whole room. In verse 9, he calls our message the secrets of the kingdom of God. 
God has unveiled. God has spoken into the darkness and unveiled the secrets of the kingdom of God, which all center around the cross of Jesus Christ. The great work of redemption where the very Son of God died in our place to pay for our sins and to bring us forgiveness and reconciliation with Him, our holy God, through faith alone. This message of the gospel, this light, has been unveiled by God. We couldn't have known it unless God unveiled it to us. But when God talks about secrets, and actually the same word here is, is, is used here in the Greek as Paul uses later for mysteries. And when Paul talks about mysteries, he's not talking about things that are difficult to understand. He's talking about things that we couldn't understand unless God has revealed it. But once God has revealed it, it's for us to receive and to rejoice in. And so in verse 17, Jesus says, nothing is hidden that will not be manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known. All things will be revealed. So much has already been revealed by the word of God, especially through the work, the redeeming work of Jesus Christ. But more and more revelation will come to those who have ears to hear. And in verse 18, he basically says, if you receive the light of God's word in faith, you will receive more and more of the secrets of the kingdom of God. But if you don't receive that word, all light will eventually be taken away from you. Even the light of common grace will be removed forever. This is the importance of our mission. We are the sowers. We are the lamps. We just need to bring the truth to a generation that so desperately needs to hear it. The Lord God, at this very moment, is awakening the hearts of unbelievers throughout our community and throughout our county and far beyond. There are people who are seeking truth and God has given it to us and we need to bring it to them. We are the sowers of the word of God and we have sowers strategically placed all over this area, on the, many of them on the campus of Penn State, many of them in the community at State College, in the neighbor, neighboring, neighboring communities, other parts of the county, even over county lines, we have people from this church that are sowers of the seed who have been given the truth that can reach people that desperately need to hear it. But you know, as I said, there's a theme that ties all three of these sections together. I hadn't touched yet on verses 19 through 21. And that's where we get this precious truth because at this point, we can just feel like workers. We're God's workers. We're God's farmers. We're God's sowers. We're God's communicators. But we're so much more than that because we have heard and received this precious word of God. In verses 19 through 21, we're told that as Jesus was giving this teaching, his mother and his brothers, his stepbrothers, of course, that would be uh, sons of Mary and Joseph, um, so stepbrothers of Jesus who had Mary as his mother, but uh, God the Father was his true father. His mother and his stepbrothers come and they want him to speak to him. They want to pull him out of this crowd to talk to him. And they, they're told, so people come to him and say, you know, your mother and your brothers are out there. They want to see you. They want, they want you to come and talk to them. And so he says, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. There's the promise to those who receive the precious word of God. Understand that Jesus is not disrespecting his mother and his brothers. He would never have disrespected his mother. He's not making light of physical family, you know, DNA type relationships. He's not in any way denigrating that. Matter of fact, the word of God in general has a very high view of the family. 
What he's saying is, you know how important my mother and my family are to me in a physical sense? Those who hear this word of God and receive it by faith are more important to me. They are my family, my spiritual family. They will be with me forever. Now, praise God, we know from the rest of Scripture that his mother was also part of his spiritual family. And at least many of his brothers, if not all his brothers, eventually were part of his spiritual family. He's not denigrating family here. He's saying what a high privilege it is to be called not only to be sowers of the seed, but to be sons and daughters of the king and to love him and live with him for eternity. And that's the great message that we have to share with the world is that what we've been given freely by grace through faith is available to all who will hear the word of God, believe, and commit themselves to be Christ's disciple. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, and I'll close with this. We are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, to one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? None of us are in and of ourselves, but with the Spirit and the Word of God, we are fully equipped to take this truth to the world. Let's pray. Father, we don't know why you chose us. We don't know why you redeemed us with the blood of your own precious Son. We are so overwhelmed by the idea that we have not only been saved from, from darkness and death and hell, but we have been adopted into your family. We are your children, and we have eternal life with you and your perfect kingdom to look forward to. And Lord, we understand that while we have life and breath in this world, we are on a mission. And Lord, I pray that you would show us more and more what it means to be faithful to that mission. Give us more and more confidence in the life-changing power of your word and make us much more aware of the presence and power of your Holy Spirit. And then, Lord, use us to share your truth with those who need to hear it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.